It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you, as always. Lots to do today. By the way, during the week, please join us. Fox Business Network, FBN. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if for some reason you can't be there at 4, well, don't give up. Just um, text your favorite nine-year-old, you know, who will show you how to DVR the show. And you won't miss anything. Nine-year-olds, they're the key. And here we can be live stream on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com, if I get that right, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. I want to thank those folks in the solar system for picking up our ratings. You're all doing a great job, LarryCudlowShow.com. So one big story today. I'm going to try to connect some dots and have some fun. We have a big stock market rally, right? Big. 850 points some odd. And actually, it's been going on for the past mm, almost a month. I think the Dow Jones is up about 15%. Uh, I think it's up almost 4,000 points. Um, so I, I want to connect the dots because this past month, we have seen poll after poll, right, showing the cavalry is coming. Poll after poll. Uh, is it going to be a Republican sweep? I believe it is. Now, I understand polls can be wrong. I understand that polls don't vote. Only voters vote. So I get that. And I understand we still have, uh, what do we got, 10 days left or two weeks left, November 8th. But it's a very important swing in the direction of our free market capitalist free enterprise freedom-loving, fossil fuels, low taxes, stop the inflationary spending, close the borders, et cetera, et cetera. Let the parents run their kids' education in schools, stronger national defense, all of that. The GOP has been on message, done a good job. It's all there in the commitment to America from my pal Kevin McCarthy. The senators, the young senators running for the first time, most of whom were Donald Trump uh, nominees, backed, they're all on message. We have Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott, who's the head of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. He'll be on at the half hour to talk to us about all this. Anyway, the point is the polls have been moving in the right direction, and it looks like a two-house sweep. It really does. I think you could get uh, 53 Senate seats, 53-47. The House can pick up, uh, I don't know, 25, 30, maybe more. Remember, they picked up 15 in 2020. So anyway, the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. The Biden's, the Biden's far left progressive, big government, socialist agenda will be coming to an end. Now, when I say coming to an end, Let me clarify. Two points. Number one, I would like to see, and I'm sure the GOP leaders would like to see, rescissions. Let's rescind the spending increases. Let's rescind the regulatory overkill. Let's rescind 
the tax hikes. Let's open the spigots for oil and gas. Let's produce more. Let's take the handcuffs off, etc. But I don't know if you can rescind what's been done. I think they'll try. I mean, the power of the purse is very powerful. I think they will try. Biden will counter with some kind of veto pen, although it's possible he may be so shocked at the extent to which the country rejects him and his far-left agenda that he'll play ball. But we'll see. You know, all that is in front of us uh, post-election. At least, the very least, a GOP majority in the Senate and the House will stop any new bad stuff, which is very important. No new tax hikes. Okay, no new three, four trillion dollar spending bills. No new uh, regulations that have been strangling oil and gas and uh, the rest of the business economy. That's the key point. So as these polls have shifted, follow me on this. Stay with me here. As the polls have shifted, it's really been the last three, four weeks. You see the stock market rally. And I think there's a connection. I think there's an important uh, connection. We talked about it last night on the Fox Business Show. And um, I know it's not the only thing going on in the stock market. And as we always do, we're going to talk stocks and the economy later in the show. And we have distinguished economist, former assistant treasurer, secretary, Mike Falkender. He'll help us out on the overall economy. But my point is, Politics often plays a role, and I think the stock market historically has always liked divided government anyway. A Republican majority in Senate and House will be a check, a stop sign on all this Biden left-wing progressive socialist stuff. You follow? It'll be a stop sign. No, no more. And I think stocks love that. Stocks love free market capitalism. Stocks love rewarding work and success and production and investment, not punishing it. Stocks do not like woke, you know, diversity, equity, racial justice throughout the government. Instead of worrying about getting inflation down and getting economic growth up, The Bidens worry about diversity and equity and inclusion. By the way, the best diversity, equity, and inclusion is a strong economy, a strong inflation-free economy that allows people to get great-paying jobs. By the way, right now, one of the problems with this whole story, as you may know, and we've talked about this, wages are going up, but inflation is going up faster. So real wages after inflation is adjusted has actually been going down for 18 straight months, 18 straight months. And that's why people sitting around kitchen tables all across this country have had it up to here. And that's why the cavalry is coming. And that's why I believe there's going to be a two house majority for the GOP to put a check and a balance on Mr. Biden's left-wing policies, right? That's what I see happening here. And I think the stock market loves this. The investor class loves this. But let me tell you something. You know, the Bidens love to make fun of wealthy people, successful people. They hate the stock market. Biden has said that. They think it's all, you know, a bunch of wealthy people rigging the market. Of course, the wealthy elites are mostly Democrats now. But here's the point I want to make. Nowadays, 
58% of adults, 58% of adults own stocks directly or indirectly. 401ks, IRAs, retirement accounts, pension funds. It's hard to know the precise count, but it's probably somewhere between 125 and 150 million people. So they are voting with their dollars. And we've been in a terrible bear market. I mean, until this rally of the past few weeks, stock market was down about 23, 24%, the broad-based S&P 500. It was a bear market. It was a bear market because it was watching Joe Biden wreck the economy. Right? And uh, now they're seeing with the new polls that we are going to get some checks and balances and stop, stop the craziness, stop the insanity, stop the big government socialism. And I think this is probably the single most powerful factor behind the stock market rally. Okay? Now, you may not agree. I appreciate that. We're going to chew on this over the course of the show. See what our stock market uh, experts tell us uh, and some others. But I think this is a key point. And look, I mean, (laughs) rising stocks increases wealth, you know, for almost every household nowadays. And so that's a big plus. I mean, it's time for some optimism, isn't it? We've had so much pessimism. It's time for some optimism. So anyway, I just want to make that point. I am connecting dots between this terrific stock market rally, which helps virtually all of us, and the likelihood, the growing likelihood, of a powerful Republican sweep taking both the Senate and the House. The cavalry is coming. Free market capitalism may yet return. There'll be plenty of problems, and we'll talk about them later on. But right up the top, connect the dots. Good polls, good GOP, good economic growth policies, good stocks. Kind of like that. All right, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on the other side. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So let me just continue on this idea. The polls have moved. It looks like a Republican sweep. House and Senate, GOP, putting the clamps, making a check, stopping the Biden big government socialism, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I've been talking to a lot of folks, uh, my pals in Washington, uh, you know, senior House members and Senate members and also senior staff, One of the things being kicked around that might be at the top of the list of changes in policy with a Republican Congress is a bill that would permit permitting, permit permitting, how about that, that would allow permitting for more oil and gas production. In effect, one of the quickest remedies for the stagflationary economy would be to just produce more oil and gas and gasoline 
and diesel fuel. By the way, diesel fuel is going to run out in two weeks, three weeks. You know that? And home heating oil, which is also running out. So prices are going back up, way back up again. Let's not rely on the Saudis. Let's not rely on Iran. Let's not rely on Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. Let's be the dominant player again. But let's produce more oil and natural gas. By the way, we produce the cleanest in the world. That's why our carbon emissions have been falling for years. We have the lowest carbon emissions of any of the big developed countries. It'll bring prices down. It'll fight inflation. And lower prices and lower inflation will promote higher real wages for families, you know, working folks, blue collars. And that will spur the economy. In other words, there's a lot of things that need to be done here. Too much spending, too much taxing, too much regulating. But on the issue of oil and gas production, fossil fuel production, you could find, look, the House will be easy. The Senate will be harder. But I think you could even find a Senate majority, a good one. Let's say you have 53 Republicans. you got all these Democrats. Many, many more Democrats will be running in 20, uh, 2024, so they're going to have to start playing ball, move back to the center. I am told that there could be an H.R. 1 and S. 1, right? H.R. 1 in the House, S. 1 in the Senate, which would codify permitting. And that would allow pipelines, that would allow refineries, LNG terminals, all the things that the Bidens have stopped. You know, with all these crazy people, Granholm running the energy department, uh, whatever name is, uh, uh, running the interior department, Buttigieg running the transportation department. They have stopped permitting. By the way, ironically... They've also stopped permitting for renewables. I mean, I'm not against renewables. I'm not. I'm, I'm all the above guy. But, you know, these uh, wind farms, you'd have to dig up hundreds of acres. And you're going to have to have carbon emitting related machinery to construct and build. You can't even get that stuff through. And, of course, you know, no new pipelines. That started with the XL way back uh, in January 2021. I think it was the first thing Biden did. First of many ultra stupid things he did. But here's the strategy. They're looking at an H.R. 1 S1, which will codify and authorize permitting and will pull back the way overly restrictive environmental issues. This is basically what President Donald Trump did. Okay, he did it as executive regulations. All right, I was a part of that with the National Economic Council. We worked very hard, Francis Brooke, Andrew Ullman, a whole bunch of people. We worked with all the agencies uh, over Rick Perry, over at Energy, of course, uh, et cetera. And the point is, this could now be put into law, and that would reopen fracking reopen that gas, reopen diesel fuel, reopen home heating fuel, get those prices down, get those wages up. It would be pro-growth, anti-inflation. It might even take some pressure off the Federal Reserve so they don't have to keep raising interest rates next year. 
fact, if Jay Powell had a brain, he would come out in favor of such a bill because it'll take the pressure off him. So we won't have to keep raising interest rates and dig an even deeper recessionary hole, which is unfortunately where we're going because of the inflationary policies of the uh, Biden administration, which will be stopped. But I'm just saying, as a first measure, I think this is a very exciting idea. S1HR1. Take the handcuffs off. That's what Senator John Hoban, my friend from uh, North Dakota, says. He calls them handcuffs. I love that. Take the handcuffs off of the fossil fuel industry. And then, of course, that would improve our national security. And that would permit us to stop looting and raiding the strategic petroleum reserve, which has become the strategic political reserve, to get a few pennies less in gasoline. We are wrecking our national security. We will not have emergency reserves. I mean, the Arab OPEC embargo, you think that couldn't happen again? They just chopped off 2 million barrels a day for no good reason because they hate Biden's guts. That's really what that was all about. We should be the dominant oil player in the world, not them, U.S. That's the way Trump left it and Biden ruined it. So I'm just saying, go back to the stock market point. The cavalry is coming, two House Republican majorities. The first thing they may do and I'm hearing a lot of this, and I'm encouraging this, is going right after one of the absolute key central problems, and that is we are not fracking enough, we are not producing enough oil and gas, we are not pipelining enough, we are not refining enough, we're not producing enough diesel, etc., etc. It would go a long way to solving problems. I mean, this is going to be a key issue. January 3rd, uh, which is what I think they reconvene formally, or whenever that date is. And this, too, is bullish for the stock market. Actually, one of the best-performing sectors is energy, even though prices have eased down some. And this goes to the heart of the Biden, you know, far-left radical socialist Green New Deal, which is a total failure. You know, I love it this week. Biden was running around and trying to make last minute – he says he inherited a terrible economy, inherited a deep recession. What is he talking about? I mean, the guy will not tell the truth on the economy. <laughs> he had inherited a deep recession. Really? Does anyone ever look at the facts in that White House? First quarter of 2021. First quarter. You know what the GDP was? Plus six and a half percent. Is that a deep recession? Six and a half percent is the best quarter Biden had. And it wasn't his quarter because he didn't really start. It was Trump, Trump's legacy. And the inflation rate was under one. It was barely above one percent. And in a little more than a year, we had two negative GDP quarters and an eight to 10 percent inflation rate. And even though the GDP was up two and a half percent, in the third quarter ending September, that was a weird number. It was all exports. Domestically, consumption and business investment was flat, zero. And for the first three quarters of the year, the first three quarters of this year, 2022, the U.S. economy is flat. It has stopped growing, and the inflation rate is still running above 8%. So I ask you, Biden inherited what? A recession? 
I mean, why? He cannot tell the truth. But, again, people see right through that. People see right through that. They understand his fraudulent approach to facts. And this, too, is, you know, contributing to the wave that's coming on November 8th. And this is why the stock market is getting very happy and bullish again, because about 125 million-plus people see clearly the cavalry is coming. We're going to break. And on the other side, Senator Rick Scott, the head of the Republican Senate campaign campaign committee, is going to give us an update and weigh in. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please, folks, hang around. Much more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. Great honor. My friend, Senator Rick Scott on the line, former governor of Florida, presently chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Senator Rick Scott, you got to have a smile on your face. Absolutely. (laughs) All this hard work, all this hard work with these great candidates uh, is paying off. Now, a lot of it is, I mean, Joe Biden basically is helping us every day. And all these Democrats and their foolish policy that's hurting our families. That's what that's what that's why we're going to win. We've got great candidates. But, man, there, I mean, whether it's the inflation, whether it's crime, whether it's the border well, all these these radical positions that Democrats are taking and continue to take, they're going to make sure we win. You know, Senator Scott, I love this. Uh, Joe Biden up in upstate New York in Syracuse, New York. I think it was Thursday. He says Republicans would create more chaos, more inflation, more damage to the economy. America will be in default. And then he goes and says, when I came in office, we inherited a deep recession. What is he talking about? This guy cannot tell the truth. Now, he doesn't worry about the truth. He, I mean, he, you know, but that's what the Democrats are doing. All they, all they want to do is they lie about where, you know, what, what we're going to do when we get, when Republicans get in charge and they lie about what they've done. They don't want to take responsibility for gas prices, food prices, um, the double in the mortgage rates, the high crime. Uh, and, and you watch these debates. Democrats keep changing their position. They don't like their positions because they know the, you know, the public in their state, the voters in their state don't like them. So you saw Fetterman. Now he's for fracking. Shocking. He was against fracking. Uh, so oh, now they want a secure border when they were against a secure border. Or now they like the police when they wanted to reimagine law, law enforcement and defund the police. So this is just a joke, and the public's smarter than this. Well, I just uh, – I love – I like the trend. I was talking earlier – you know, the, the polls are looking so good, the GOP is going to capture both houses. I think it's boosting the stock market, Senator Scott. I really think stocks are sense, responding. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of people yeah, on stocks. So let's talk about some of these specifics, and then I want to talk about some futuristic policies. Um, i got to give my hat off to you. You did not desert Donald Bullduck up in New Hampshire. I mean, the guy's got a shot. It's not a layup, he's but he's a got shot. a shot. I'm going up there tomorrow. I know you are. And you've, you put some money and resources back. I was furious. McConnell deserted him. I mean, Mitch McConnell's an old friend of mine. I don't want to get into all that. But really, I mean, this guy's got a shot up in New Hampshire. That's our job. Our job is to help the people get through the primaries. 
So Don Boldick has a shot to win. Hassam is a blank check for whatever Biden and whatever Chuck Schumer wants. That's not good for this country. We've got to do everything we can to get Don Boldick across the finish line, and I'm going to do it. We're putting, we're running ads up there. We we got grassroots active you know, activity up there. We're going to. I, I'm I'm very optimistic about. Um, New Hampshire. Part of it is Hassan is not liked. Her policies are bad for, you know, for and they know her up there. It's a small state. She was the governor. They know her policies are not good for for people in New Hampshire. Yeah, her. You're right. Her disapprovals are high. She's a blank check for Biden. Uh, you're absolutely right. I Look, I had Balduck, General Balduck, actually. I had him on the show twice, but the second time we had a good interview, six, seven minutes. I thought he was very good. Senator Scott, I thought he was very good, well-versed. You know, the big issue, it's very interesting to me. And the closing, I mean, inflation has always been the uh, number one issue, inflation slash economy. But fracking has come back in some of these races. Like fracking, they don't have any home heating oil up in the Northeast, particularly New Hampshire. And also fracking in New Hampshire. Now, you mentioned Fetterman's flip-flop. It's interesting to me how that has become, uh, you know, a, a late issue again in this campaign. Well, you know, it's shocking that people want low gas prices. Is that a shock? No. Shocking that we want to be energy independent in this country. That's not a shock. Like, you know, so it's, 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 the Democrats, these radical policies they're taking where they want to get rid of all fossil fuel. Look, I want to take care of the environment. I mean, I mean, I've, I've invested a lot of you know Florida taxpayer dollars taking care of the environment. But do I want to be have low gas prices? Yes. Do I want to have a good economy? Yes. Do I want to take care of the environment? Yes. I want to do all those things. You can do all those things. But the Democrats, they have this. They're just out there. They want to get rid of fossil fuels with no alternative. Uh, that and then it's going to hurt poor families. It's already hurting poor families. People on fixed income. In my state, I got people going back to work there on fixed income because. Because they can't, they can't afford it. I was, I was campaigning with Ron Johnson in Wisconsin yesterday. And a guy came up to us and said, you know, his wife was going back to work. Uh, Seventy-seven years old, his wife was going back to work because they can't afford gas and food. Mm. You know, uh, it's interesting. John Kerry going blathering on in Europe, wherever they had this conference this past week. If you take out oil and gas, you take out fossil fuels. You know, uh, sure, you mentioned gasoline and things that. Home heating oil. There's no diesel fuel. There's a shortage of diesel fuel. Right. But you also, you know, fossil fuels play a gigantic role in hundreds of everyday products, including, by the way, so we have record inflation in food and grocery prices. Okay. Well, guess what? Fertilizers depend on fossil fuels. Also, lower income people can't afford the finest cottons and silk. Guess what? They have to use fossil fuel related clothing. Okay, that's what the petrochemical business is all about. And it's perfectly good clothing. And they rely on it. And shoes rely on it. And sneakers rely on it. And your polo shirts rely on it. That's what they'd be doing if you take out fossil fuels. They would be knocking out food and clothing as well as gasoline. How about how about incubators yes. for newborns? Yes. How about, how about making sure we have reliable energy when you have an, a, pre, a preemie? How about how about making sure they can afford all the equipment and they can make sure we have electricity when you have a newborn that's struggling? And so in this country, you know what? We can do that. In other countries, they can't. But even now, look at the cost. Look at the, what, the cost of this energy to people. And it's in it's every part of our life. You cannot build an economy without less expensive energy. We've built the U.S. economy with less expensive energy. What the Biden administration and Democrats are doing, they're ruining the U.S. economy by high 
energy cost. It doesn't make any sense. And shortages. Look at the diesel. Look at diesel prices. I mean, and so much of our transportation is done by diesel, and we only have, what, a 25-day supply of diesel right now? I mean, this is all Biden and Democrat policies. It's crazy. Trucks and buses. Trucks and buses getting killed by the diesel shortage. We're talking to Florida Senator Rick Scott, who is, importantly, the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and things are looking better and better. Senator Scott, let's just uh, quickly look at some of these races. Laxalt looks very good in Nevada. Yep, just got to get the vote out. And actually, I'm looking at polls. I'm looking at the betting markets. Uh, they're betting that Herschel Walker is a winner in Georgia. Now, that's a tough race. What do you, what do you Every time they throw garbage at him, his actual numbers have gone up. It's like Trump back in 2016 when they kept finding women, right? He was supposed to have uh, sexual assaults on women that didn't exist. They're doing the same thing to Herschel Walker. But the pay-to-play betting markets are betting that Herschel wins. Herschel's going to win. By the way, this is just what the Democrats do. They can't stand the fact that, that Herschel's going to win. They're so mad that they don't get to keep that Georgia seat. They know they're losing, so they just they find people and just go out and throw smear at him and smear at him. But you know what? Herschel, he is, he is staying on message. Look at that debate. You know, he stayed on message. And, you, and Warnick looked like he, he just worked for Chuck Schumer. That's all he does. Whatever. Oh, it did Chuck, oh, Chuck told me he had to vote that way. So, oh, yeah, I have to do that. I don't care. I don't work for Georgia. I'll say that in my campaign, but I don't actually do that. All Warnick does is work for Chuck Schumer. Hmm. How's the Blake Masters thing look in Arizona, Rick? I think he, I think he's going to win. One, he's running a good race. He, he demolished Kelly in the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly's voting against border security, the biggest issue in Arizona. And by the way, Kerry Lake is running a good race. So to two of them together, Blake and Kerry, look at the energy. I've been out campaigning. Here's what people don't get. You go out and campaign with these people, and you see hundreds of people show up. Mm. Right? There was, there was, uh, uh, I did a campaign event with Ron Johnson yesterday, and I don't know, he had uh, two or three hundred people there, and there were, oh, there were three protesters, you know, there were three on the other side. Mm. I mean, there's no energy on the other side because they know their policies are horrible. And by the way, we put a bunch of effort in to get out in the Hispanic vote. Uh, we've got uh, a thing called Operation Bombless in nine states. We Hispanics are fed up. They're mm. fed up with Democrats right now. Mm. Um, Pennsylvania looks good. You know, it's funny. Uh, I had Mehmet Oz on the TV show, and of course, he's gotten so much better, and he's become a very good communicator. But people forget that, you know, he was a first-rate cardiologist. And Senator yeah. Scott, he's a world-renowned cardiologist. The trouble, the, the trouble with Fetterman is Fetterman should be a patient of Oz, not his opponent. Yeah. He needs yeah, Oz for a- therapy. <laughs> but look, after the debate and the whole brouhaha about the lack of transparency with his health condition, are you confident now in uh, Pennsylvania? Oh yeah, I- I've always believed Oz was going to win because in the end, when people go to the polls. The positions that Fetterman has taken do not fit Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He's anti-fracking. He wants to release all these criminals that have killed people. He wants to legalize all the drugs. That's not, by the way, this is not the year to be stopped on crime. People have seen the unbelievable increase in crime around the country. And by the, by the way, in Pennsylvania, they, they want lower, lower energy costs. Fracking will do that. And they want all those jobs that Fetterman wants to get rid of. Yeah. Senator Scott, one, just going, going for it, let us uh, breathtakingly assume majorities in the House and Senate. Uh, I've been in touch with a lot of people, senior staff and members, 
Why not go? This is something that's coming up. H.R. 1 and S. 1 would be the permitting bill. Codify it. Authorize it. So we can go after increased production of oil and gas. We make the cleanest in the world. Pick up the fracking. Uh, pick up the pipelining, for example. Get the prices and inflation down and get economic growth up. In other words, you're going to be faced, Senator Scott, you're going to be faced with stagflation when you take office uh, in, in early January. It's not going to go away. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be done. I get that, you know, spending and taxing and regulating. We can talk about all that. But it just occurs to me that one of the biggest hits, one of the most biggest impactful policies could be to uh, open up the permitting, get the fracking going again, increase the production of oil and gas in all their many forms, and that would, A, lower the inflation rate, and, B, increase uh, economic growth and real wages. So people are talking about S1 and HR1 that would do that right off the top, you know, hit the ground running right from the get-go. I don't know whether you've been tapped into that because I know you're traveling mightily, but what do you think of that idea? Absolutely. When I was governor, we added 1.7 million jobs. I cut taxes and fees 100 times, but the biggest thing I did, I got rid of 20% of the regulations in the state that we didn't need, mm-hmm. and I streamlined the permitting. That was more important than even the tax reduction. So right now, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to get the federal government out of our lives. They're, they're way too involved, whether it's oil and gas industry, but every industry, they, the federal government is just is just a damp they just dampen all the opportunities in this country, and we've got to we got to get rid of that. So yeah, absolutely. The first thing is we got to get this oil and gas industry back producing oil and gas safely in this country mm. and get these prices down, and they'll get the gas prices down, diesel prices down, food prices down, the the whole, and it'll and it'll just and create unbelievable opportunities going forward. I'm, 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 I'm actually excited about what we're going to be able to accomplish. Yeah, so, okay, so you're on to that. That's good, because you're going to be a key, key, key player. Um, just briefly, I don't want to keep, because I know you're terribly busy, and you've, you've, done, you, you've done so well, Senator Rick Scott, on this story. Um, what else? You're going to have, again, it's kind of an economic Dunkirk. I mean, you're going to have inflation. You're going to have recession. Hopefully, we can get the oil and gas business going again. How about spending and taxing? Um, we got to wait for reconciliation. I mean, how do you see this? Be- and you think Biden well, will to- play ball or not? I don't know if he will or not. It doesn't matter. What we've got to do is do our job. What we've got to do is we, we dramatically reduce the size of the federal government, dramatically reduce the size, reduce taxes and fees, and start growing the economy. That's how – if you want more tax revenues, you grow your economy. You don't grow your economy by taxing. You grow your economy by, by reducing taxes and fees and regulatory environment, things like that. Then you grow the economy and you get more taxes. That's what we've got to do, and we've got to get people back to work. We've got to quit incentivizing people not to work. So I'm I'm very optimistic that we're going to be able to do that. I I don't know if Biden will go along with this or not, but I'm going to do everything I can to pass those, that legislation, and then put him in a position that he's got a choice: does he want a good economy, or does he want a bad economy? Because that's exactly what it's going to be. Does he want to help people or continue to hurt people? Yeah. Well, Senator Rick Scott, you've done a great job. You're a prince for helping us on the radio show. We appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. I know you got a lot of work to do, and you're a busy guy. Good luck on the campaign trail, sir. We appreciate it very much. See you, Larry. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks so long. All right, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I'll have some comments on what Senator Scott said. He has done such a great job. I mean, really, Rick Scott has done such a good job. And i got to tell you this. Mitch McConnell is an old friend of mine. 
But Mitch McConnell bad-mouthing some of these candidates. We'll take a break, and I'll talk about it on the other side. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So you heard Senator Rick Scott, who has done, really, yeoman's work as the head of the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee. Yeoman's work. What, one of the, listen, one of the kind of sub-themes here, okay, I want to go into politics for a second. You had a flock of new faces running for these uh, important Senate seats. Uh, you know, Blake Masters being one of them out in Arizona, Herschel Walker being one of them in uh, Georgia, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. I mean, look, I was for David McCormick uh, in the primary in Pennsylvania, but Mehmet Oz won by, I don't know, a couple hundred votes, and I think Oz has turned out to be a very strong candidate. Very good communicator. I've had him on the TV show a couple times. He's done very well. You've got, um, I mentioned Blake Masters. You've got J.D. Vance in Ohio, first time. He's turned out to be a very good candidate, hasn't he? You've got uh, this Tiffany Smiley up in the state of Washington. She's still in the hunt uh, against uh, Patty Murray, who is just one of the worst and meanest left-wing senators. Uh, anyway, Tiffany's done very well. We've had all these people on the on the Cudlow TV show. One of the things that irks me is that, you know, some people, unfortunately, the minority leader Mitch McConnell badmouthed them. You know, kind of knocked them down. I bought Don Baldock up in New Hampshire. I don't know if he's going to win. He's in the hunt. The polls are close. We had him on the TV show Thursday night, I guess. I thought he did very well. Former, former general. He's a retired uh, Brigadier General, you know, knocking on fracking and taxes and inflation and spending at the whole story right on message. All these folks seem to be very much on message to me. And I just don't understand why McConnell and some others had to, you know, take swipes at them. Now, it could have something to do with Donald Trump because Trump has been behind these candidates from day one. The new crop. And I'll tell you, um, if they win, you know, four or five of them win or six, or, I don't know, there are six, seven of them in total. If Trump has a high batting average, and that includes some of these governors, including this Carrie Lake in Arizona, if he wins, he's just going to be an unstoppable force in the Republican Party and will be the immediate frontrunner for the nomination in 24, if he wants to run, if he wants to run. Look, I, I make no bones about it, okay? I, I I served under President Trump for three years. It was the greatest job of my life. Uh, I love the guy. He's a friend. I love the guy. I talk to him frequently. I don't talk politics with him. I talk policy with him. That's my role, economic policy. But I'm just saying, in political terms, when you look at this, and Look, I'm not selling anybody. If, if President Trump runs, he'll run. Uh, of course, if he's on the ballot, I'm going to back him. But the p- point is, I'm just saying it's an it's an interesting story, a sub-theme, that if you take the Senate, you know, let's say you get 52 or 53, or who knows, 54. At the margin, these were Trump-backed candidates. And Senator McConnell and a couple of others Mick, Mitt Romney and others had to, you know, take swipes at these candidates. They were really taking swipes 
at President Trump, and they were wrong. Trump is a good talent spotter, and Trump's kept them on message. I mean, Joe Biden can talk about MAGA messaging all he wants, but the issues here are very simple. Inflation, recession, fracking oil and gas, energy independence, border sovereignty, parents in the schools, no crazy woke cancel culture, sex and gender ID for five-year-old kids. These are Trump themes. This is what Trump tried to do in his four years. He made some good progress. Then Biden comes to try to unravel it, and look what's happening. The country wants to go back to the Trump ideas and strategies and policies. That's what this is about, is it not? I would say it's common sense. Now, again, I'm not proselytizing for 2024. President Trump wants to run, he's going to run. If he doesn't want to run, he's not going to run. That's not my job. But I'm saying he chose good candidates. And the sniping against them from, you know, some other Republicans was wrong. Because the stakes are so high, we should be uniting around these people. Even now, even now, I don't see that uniting inside the GOP. But as Rick Scott said, the tide is with them. The, the, the themes are clear. The Biden failures are clear. The country is in revolt. But I'm just saying, you know, another sub-theme here is the Trump sub-theme. I mean, he is in a position to claim correctly. Now, he's backed many governors. He's backed many House members. But the sexiest races have been the Senate races. You know, Herschel Walker is a Trump guy. Blake Mance is a Trump guy. J.D. Vance is a Trump guy. Oz is a Trump guy. My pal, Leora Levy, up in Connecticut. She's a Trump person. Leora's in the race. I think uh, the Fabrizio poll, Tony Fabrizio is a great pollster. She was down five. Nobody likes uh, Richard Blumenthal. Nobody likes that guy. He's a far-left radical guy showing up at Communist Party dinners in Connecticut and Anti, you know, anti-fracking, even though his family made their money in oil and gas. He's anti, he hates rich people, even though he and his wife are very rich. I don't care that they're rich. I'm happy they're rich. But he votes against success. He votes against investment. He votes against production. He votes against, he votes for high taxes, right? He's a big phony. Leora might win. Trump backed Leora. Leora won the primary. It's, you know, it's, I got, you got to give credit to Donald Trump. Whatever you think of him, folks, you know, I know he says things <laughs> that may be a little cringeworthy. Not every tweet is perfect. But I think he's got the basic story, and I think that's one of the sub-themes of this entire election. And you want to know what? It's paying off. The cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. All right, I'm Larry Kudlow. Speaking of the cavalry, Congressman Lee Zeldin running for governor here against uh, Hoko. He's got a great shot at it. He'll be here on the other side of the break. Please stick around. Much more on Cutlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Cutlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cutlow. This is The Larry Cutlow Show. And on the line, we have Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican candidate for governor. 
Lee Zeldin, thank you. I know you're busy, but, you know, you have a regular spot on this radio show. So here we are. Congrats on the debate. Good work. You knocked her around pretty good. So I want to talk to you about the story this morning in the New York Post. So now she's catering to this far-left socialist working families party. Really? What is that going to do to the state of New York? Uh, not good. It's great to be back with you, Larry. And the, the Working Families Party is the champions of the defund the police movement and cashless bail and getting DAs like Alvin Bragg hired who refuse to enforce the law, partnering with the furthest less elements of the Democratic Party doesn't bode well for economic policy, for attacks on freedom, uh, certainly for public safety. So it's uh, it's a big concern. I mean, we've been talking about the quality of education in our schools and the need for uh, school choice and lifting the caps on charter schools and, and access to a quality of education, regardless of race, ethnicity, and zip code. Uh, so just on so many different fronts, by hooking into the furthest left extremes of the Democratic Party, it doesn't bold well at all for New York. But the great news is that 10 days from now, New York has this amazing opportunity to elect a new governor and she could go spend as much time as she wants hanging out with the far left. She won't be in the governor's mansion. I mean, I'm looking at the post editorial. These, this, this crowd working families party with Hochul's is hanging on and now. She's desperate because you're coming on so strong. You're going to win this thing. They are the ones most responsible for the criminal justice uh, problems. No cash, no bail. I mean, in the debate, it was just fascinating to me. Two things. Number one, she doesn't understand why putting criminals in jail is a good idea. She had no response. And number two, when she was asked about the 57% increase in subway crime, she had no answer. She was shocked to hear that. 57% increase in subway crime. Well, where's she been on the subway crime? Where's she been on crime in general? Where's she been? Now she's going to the working families. This is the AOC type stuff. This is Bernie Sanders type stuff. Yeah, and she was given multiple opportunities to be tough on crime, and she was purposefully passing up on that opportunity, and she took it to the next level where she would start going after me. She doesn't understand why this is so important to me, she says. And when she says that she doesn't understand why locking up criminals and securing our streets is so important to me, I mean, that's a message to everyone who's paying attention, all New Yorkers who care about public safety. Uh, so it shows how out of touch she is, uh, how weak she is on this issue. And you can't talk about crime without the reality of needing to lock up people who owe a debt to society, locking up criminals who hurt other people, individuals who are committing crimes, uh, which should come with consequences. And she was trying to avoid that. She's one of these people who wants us to just look away. There's nothing to see here, that uh, it's just a perception that there's crime. You know, tell that to the people who have lost their lives or people who are battling for their, their vision uh, or otherwise physically harmed. Go tell that to the business owners who are, are getting looted all throughout the day, people just coming in, grabbing inventory and leaving without paying. Uh, you know, there are consequences for the law-abiding New Yorker, and they're desperate looking for that leadership to roll back pro-criminal laws, to make sure DAs are enforcing the law, and that our law enforcement is supportive. And she's just taking a pass on this. Mm. Um, Lisa Elvin, talk about you. You raised this in the debate, but I, I think it needs to be further uh, ventilated. Um, 
again, this Workers' Family Party, this far left, these socialists, these are the uh, anti-frackers, uh, anti-fossil fuels. These are the Green New Deal people. If why <laughs> do people understand how important it would be, how helpful it would be for the New York economy, for New York jobs, for lower prices uh, for electricity and so forth? If we did some fracking, if we put the pipeline into New York uh, in the southeast uh, part of the state, I mean, these prices, gasoline at the pump has come down some, but uh, utility prices are going up, electricity prices are going up, home heating fuel prices are going up, and you're willing to stand up and say, look, they passed all these tests, it's absolutely safe. Tell us why it would be important and helpful on so many counts, Lee Zeldin, if we open the door to some uh, fracking. Most New Yorkers understand the the revenue that can be generated, the uh, jobs that can be created, the energy costs that can be reduced, the communities that can be revitalized. The southern tier of New York borders Pennsylvania. They look across their border. They see the extraction of natural gas on the other side. And they're just desperate for Albany to reverse the state ban. And there's just so many positives for the entire state by allowing the Southern Tier and some of these other counties to be able to tap into this resource, which is two shells named after New York towns that we're the only state that is blocking uh, the extraction into. And when you mentioned the pipeline into Southeast New York, The Williams Pipeline was being proposed to bring natural gas in and through New York. And Bill de Blasio and his buddies, they all got together and they blocked this pipeline from coming in. And then you see the consequences play out, obvious, clear as day what was going to happen. But next step was National Grid and Con Edison, uh, uh, they put out an announcement saying no gas hookups on new construction. And then the far left, you mentioned the Working Families Party, they own a majority of the New York City Council, they passed a new city law saying no gas hookups for new construction. And these same people are the ones who, the same ideology, same party, they're they're controlling Albany right now. Not for long, if we do what we need to in the next 10 days. But for right now, they control it, and they want to have a ban on all gas hookups Mm. statewide. So the the reality, uh, uh, when you look at the contrasting viewpoints, as we look to tap into this potential, and I want to see New York not just extracting this resources, uh, this resource, to take care of ourselves, uh, but also we should be uh, exporting energy to other states. We could be exporting energy to other countries. And now the environmental uh, hypocrisy here and irony of uh, the the opposition is that when Joe Biden and the federal government cuts off access to Russian oil imports, and then they run off. Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia or wherever else to, you know, to grab this energy supply, that is being tapped into less environmentally friendly than what we would be doing right here at home. And by the way, there are New Yorkers who have no problem with Pennsylvania extracting natural gas, mm. but they have a problem with us doing it. So it's just, it's so absurd on the economics. And even if you were to dig deeper into the environmental, uh, the environmental aspect, I'm a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We had John Kerry come testify in front of the committee as the climate change czar of the White House. And he was asked, what's the safest way to transport energy? And he was asked about all sorts of different options, trucks. and He was asked about freight and pipelines. He was given all sorts of options. You know which one he picked. He picked pipeline. Mm. 
So if of course the pipeline is the most environmentally friendly way of transporting this, then why aren't we building more pipelines? And now we get the truck traffic off the road. It's going to be cold in the winter. Okay, it's going to be cold. People are going to need fossil fuel various extractions to stay warm. And Hochul had no response to that, uh, which amazed me. The last one, Lee Zeldin, I, I know you're busy and we appreciate your time. The last one is the corruption issue. You and I have talked a lot about that. Uh, I thought you did a super job putting it out there. But she had no response, okay? It's like she just said, no, we don't. There's pay, you know, uh, pay, pay for play. Uh, donors, but Buffalo Stadium. I mean, she just had no response to that. Yeah, and she is corrupt. I mean, she comes into office August of 21. She acts like she was elected governor. She was never elected governor. She was elected lieutenant governor. She's filling out the remainder of Andrew Cuomo's term. And she comes in and decides that she needs to raise tens of millions of dollars. And the only way for her to raise tens of millions of dollars is to sell out access to her office. And that's what she went about doing. And we see it with the digital gadgets deal where they host a fundraiser for her. Four days later, she unilaterally suspends uh, uh, New York's competitive bidding law. Digital Gadgets provides a, a no-bid offer, which ended up being over $600 million for COVID tests they don't even make. And the same day as the offer is made, the, uh, Kathy Hochul and her team approve it. And we end up paying twice the price, as California did. And California is really no example, no model for fiscal uh, smartness and conservatism. Yet they spent 45% less than we did. That's just one of so many different examples of pay to play corruption. So we get an opportunity at the debate this week to ask each other a question. I asked a specific question. What, what specific measures are you pledging to end this pay to play corruption that is plaguing your administration? And she, she had no answers. I mean, she, all, all she was saying was that there was no pay to play corruption. Obviously, there is. And you, know, you just it, constantly, from one issue to the next, he's just insulting the intelligence mm. of the electorate. There's no crime. Look away. Uh, you know, she, was, she criticized me multiple times where she'd say, all he talks about are uh, cut, cutting taxes, cutting taxes, cutting taxes. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's true. <laughs> and she comes back and she says it again. She criticizes me. You know, as I mentioned earlier, all he does, he just keeps talking about cutting taxes, and cutting taxes, and cutting taxes. Really? Like someone on your political team told you, like as part of your debate prep, that you're going to come in here and start attacking me for how I believe that we should be cutting taxes and make life in New York more affordable on so many levels. She's just totally out of touch. Well, you did a great job, Lee Zeldin, and you're looking good on this race. Um, open invitation for the next Saturday, uh, if you can make it. You've been on the show much of times. You're doing a fabulous job. Good luck on the campaign trail. I'm going to let you go because I know you're real busy. But, uh, folks, this is Lee Zeldin on a roll, about to win his race against uh, socialist Kathy Hochul, who's thrown in with this crazy working families party. It's AOC and it's Bernie Sanders, and it's exactly what we do not need here in New York. I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, folks, welcome back. I'm Larry Kudlow. We have the great Dan Clifton Head of all the policy research at Strategus Research Partners, number one all-star. Dan Clifton, thanks for the thanks for coming on Saturday. I know it's double duty. You were great on the show last night. You know, 
One of the things you said is so interesting, and it's what I wanted to focus on. So we're looking at the stock market rallying. We're looking at the polls. Uh, looks like a two-house sweep for the GOP Senate and House of Representatives. But you said that actually your basket of stocks, you have like a Democratic basket and a Republican basket, and the Republican basket has been moving up smartly and that that's a key indicator. And I hadn't really absorbed that. I know you're right about it. You're right about a lot of good things. But talk to us more about that, because I think it's a really interesting way to look at this election. Do we lose him? Oh, anyway. So uh, we're, try- we're trying to get Dan back, technical change. Uh, Dan Clifton's top Washington policy research guy for Strategus. He has kind of a cult following on Wall Street. And we were talking to him last night on the TV show and talking about how the cavalry is coming and the stock market likes that. I opened uh, with my introduction. And um, he has a basket of stocks for a Republican victory, and he has a basket of stocks for Democratic victory. And um, it's the Republican basket that's been outperforming. Uh, we're trying to get him back on the phone. A part of the Republican basket, not surprisingly, is energy. But there are other things in that basket as well. And that that is as good an indicator uh, as anything else. It may be even Better than the betting marks. Do we have them back? Hi, Larry. How are you? There you I'm go. Sorry, I was. I can hear you, but you couldn't hear me. I don't know what happened All there. Right. So uh, odd thing. It's poltergeist. But uh, you were yeah. so great last night, and I, uh, you, you, you made me really think about it. So I thought maybe you'd give us a couple of moments. The the Republican basket is outperforming. What's in that basket? Yeah. So first, thank you for having me on this morning. Great interview with Lee Zeldin. Oh, thanks. And uh, I look at um, what the way I would go back to this. A good way of explaining it is in 2016, when Donald Trump was running for president in the final two or three weeks of the campaign, what you began to see were financial stocks outperforming, energy stocks outperforming. And I just want to ask you this question. If you really thought the polls were correct, and Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency, would you be buying energy and bank stocks? Right. No. No. And it's very clear to us, we've been doing this for 20 years, mm. is using the stock market as a guide for how the market sees the election. And what we have found is that the stock market is a much better predictor of election results than mm. the polls. Mm. And we also use betting odds, as you know. And so we have a Republican portfolio. We have a Democratic portfolio. And we run their performance relative to each other to see how the market's pricing in the election. And what you see in that portfolio are stocks that are tied to increased defense spending Mm. and building out the energy infrastructure. And I think the key one is enforcement of immigration laws, whether that's private prisons or new scanning techniques. Those are the stocks that are really starting to outperform because those are really the three priorities that the Republicans are putting forward, better energy permitting, enforcement of the southern border, closing up that southern border, and a strong national defense. Hmm. That's in addition to what I call the Cudlow plan of ensuring that the tax cuts for 100 percent expensing and other factors are also included in there. But if you look in the last month, you know, you got you got uh, Lockheed Martin up 25 percent, mm. but you also have another company called Axon Enterprises, which does a lot of 
funding of, of police gear, immigration uh, equipment, that's up 23 percent in the last month. All right. So you're seeing this broad GOP rally in the stocks that are very consistent with their with their uh, with their agenda. Now, let me take the other side. In the Democratic portfolio, we've been seeing significant weakness. And where that weakness is showing up is in particular in the green energy stocks. Mm. These stocks, Larry, you know, they were up big with the Inflation Increase Act. I don't call it the Inflation Reduction Act, but mm. with the Inflation Increase Act. Okay. And they have really begun to sell, sell off. You're talking about some of these stocks being down uh, 10 to 15 percent in the last uh, 30 days or so. Mm. And that's largely because the market is now anticipating a Republican sweep. So I believe in the wisdom of, of the market. Uh, that doesn't mean it's predictive and 10 days from now it's going to lead to a result. A lot can change between now events, between now and then, and events tend to shape election. The market is increasingly pricing in a Republican sweep. This has been dramatic over the last three or four weeks, and it's largely showing up in the stocks that are levered to the Republican and Democratic agendas. Where does um, health care related stuff fall out? Yep. Yep. So let's break health care into two categories. It's it's not really like energy where, you know, the GOP are just generally good for energy. But on healthcare, you have to break that into two. As you know, the Inflation Increase Act that passed last summer put price caps on uh, prescription drugs. And, and, and they don't go into effect until 2026. But overall, what you're seeing is a big rally in the pharmaceutical stocks. So mm-hmm. in our portfolio, we have a couple of pharma and biotech stocks. Over the last 30 days, those stocks are up 7 to 9% hmm. in that portfolio, okay? Now, if you look at the other side, the Democrats win. That means that you're going to get more ACA spending. That's good for managed care. That's good for hospitals. And they're generally down over the last, uh, over the last 30 days. In particular, you know, you look at some of the, health, uh, the hospital stocks, they've really been taking it on the chin because of higher labor costs. And this idea that there may not be as much coverage. So you're seeing it in all the key sectors and you're seeing it exactly the way you would think you would, because as you know, and you know, rightly, there's a lot of factors going on. You have a Ukraine war. You have the Fed leaking to the, uh, to the Wall Street Journal last week that they're going to, they're going to relax on these rate increases to try and get stocks juiced up before the election. So there's a lot of factors. And that's why we look at the stocks that are tied to the agenda of both parties to see what they're doing. And they're sending a very clear message. I think this is fascinating. That's why you guys are number one. That's why you're number one. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. Banks, energy, defense, immigration related. That is just so interesting to me. And also what you just said about drugs and pharma. Sure, because Republicans don't want price controls. That's so, right. so that gives their outlook better. But, yeah, you're right. Managed care hospitals. Where, do, where would insurance companies fall out? Yeah, you. So, so uh, health insurers—they're with the Democrats. Yeah. So they are now tied to right. the ACA spending, right. right? And so, look, the health insurers have been doing pretty good, largely because they're domestic companies, so they haven't been in- impacted by the stronger dollar. There's just been a move into those, and the Inflation Increase Act locked in some of those ACA subsidies mm-hmm. on them for a while, right? So, so they're going to be a little bit impacted by other factors, uh, so to speak. But you know, we can dig. We can even dig deeper down. What you see is a broad rally happening in, comp- in companies like material companies, which mm-hmm. are going to be very important to build out 
much of the America First agenda mm. and uh, tied to the energy renaissance that could be coming. Um, the Democrats are trying to put limits on credit card companies like price controls on their credit fees. Those stocks are rallying. So we can get as granular as you want. You can look at restaurants that are impacted by the All minimum right. wage. They're rallying. So Dan, it goes on and on, Larry. Dan Clifton, you're a prince. It's a brilliant analysis. Really terrific stuff. Thanks for coming on. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk to Republican Mike Lawler, who's about to have a huge upset in a congressional race in uh, Rockland County in New York. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. We will be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So there's yet another upset in making. Right? We had Congressman Lee Zeldin on before, who looks to win against Governor Hochul. That's a big upset. Uh, we bring in Mike Lawler, who was the New York Republican nominee for Congress up in Rockland County. I'm going to get this right, Mike Lawler, because I was desperately trying to do some research. This is a redrawn district. We got, what do you got, Orange and Putnam County, Southwestern Duchess, Northern Westchester, Rockland, etc. And Mike, so as I, you're running against Sean Patrick Maloney, who's he's the head of the Democratic uh, Congressional Committee, right? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Larry. Yeah. Uh, I'm running against Sean Patrick Maloney. Uh, he is the chair of the DCCC. He's Nancy Pelosi's campaign manager, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, his his objective is to ensure that people like AOC and Ilan Omar and Jamal Bowman are reelected to Congress and that they hold the majority. Uh, we are 10 days away from an election. My latest polling has me up six. Oh. Uh, we have surged ahead. And we we are going to win on November 8th and be the face of the red wave and ensure that Nancy Pelosi is no longer Speaker of the House going forward. And it's really because of two reasons, inflation and crime. Mm. Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney has voted 100 percent lockstep with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, uh, creating a 41 year record high on inflation, skyrocketing energy prices. He said cashless bail was his top priority. Uh, leading to the surge in crime. Uh, index crimes are up 36% since cashless bail took effect in New York City, and 40% of those released on non-monetary bail for felony offenses have been uh, rearrested while those charges are pending. It has been an unmitigated disaster. And folks in the Hudson Valley, uh, the immediate suburbs of New York City, understand uh, the problems and the challenges. You know, 50% of households in this district have a cop, a firefighter, a veteran, or a mm. first responder living in it. Mm. So people are acutely aware of the challenges, um, and I feel very good about where we are uh, in this race. Uh, you know, to, Sh- Sean Maloney is struggling so much, he had to have Joe Biden call in and try and save him. He's having Jill Biden come in tomorrow to do a rally. <laughs> um, we, we, we are in a very good spot, and if people want to support us, they can go to firemaloney.com. That's FireMaloney.com to help us get over the finish line here. Mike Lawler, as, as I understand it, so you're talking about inflation, crime, the border, immigration. Uh, this guy's trying, he says you're Donald Trump and you, you want to overturn the election, which as I, you, that was never your position anyway. No. I mean, no, first it, of all, you're not Donald Trump. Uh, but putting that aside, 
That was not your position. Isn't that a flat-out lie? Pretty much everything he has said in this campaign has been a flat-out lie because he can't defend his record. Mm. And so he has tried to attack me on guns, abortion, Donald Trump, the election. And it's really pathetic, but uh, not unsurprising. Again, when you vote 100 percent lockstep with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, there's not much to run on. And so he, you know, he's struggling, um, you know, and, and you mentioned redistricting on the front end of this. You know, when this map was created, uh, he chose to push Mondaire Jones, the first openly gay black man out of Congress uh, and and take the district for himself. Uh, you know, talk about white privilege. Mm. Um, but John Maloney in this district, 75 percent of it is new. So he doesn't have the built-in name ID or in advantages of a normal incumbent. And so, you know, I'm coming out of Rockland County, which is 42% of the district. I represent a good portion of it in the state assembly currently. And so we are we are really in a very good position. I'm actually going to be with Lee Zeldin in just a few moments. We're doing a, a big get-out-the-vote rally in Rockland County uh, today in, in support of law enforcement. So... You know, things are going well. Zeldin is a, is ahead in my polling as well in this district. And mm -hmm. I think you know both of us are going to have a very good election night. I would think in, on inflation and crime, which is clearly surfacing as the biggest issues, that the soccer moms are going to go with you. And on top of that, the independents, but also, Mike, the independent women or independent soccer moms. I would think, you know, they're listening and hearing and they're going to go with you. Well, listen, you, you obviously have a lot of experience when it comes to the economy, and you understand better than anyone. Uh, you know, as James Carville said, it's the economy, stupid. Mm -hmm. And as as mothers and, and fathers and grandparents go to the grocery store and they're looking at paying $6 for a gallon of milk or four fifty for a carton of eggs or $16 for a package of chicken, uh, people are struggling and they're and and they're really being forced to choose between paying their grocery bills, paying their rent or their mortgage, paying their home heating costs. I've met seniors knocking on doors who are sitting in their home in the dark with the heat off mm. because they can't afford it. And mm. this is a real crisis that that people are dealing with uh, across the Hudson Valley and across New York State. And the Democrats own it. You know, Larry, this is the first time in the history of our nation that they control everything in Washington, Albany, and New York City all at once. Hmm. And they have created an absolute mess. They made a complete hash of it. And so this guy, uh, Maloney, he's a 100% Pelosi vote, I assume. 100%. Oh, absolutely. All the absolutely. stuff that's broken down in the last two years, he's voted for. No question. And, and, and in fact, as chair of the DCCC in leadership, you know, he's been uh, basically her hatchet man, twisting arms and forcing uh, members uh, of the Democratic conference to, to vote for these uh, ridiculous bills, including the Inflation Expansion Act, which did nothing to reduce inflation, uh, negatively impacted GDP and, and uh, you know, raised taxes on middle class families in the Hudson Valley. And Mike Lawler, just to let folks know, you were in the assembly, right, for one yes. term, several terms. How many? I, I won in 2020. I defeated a 14-year Democrat incumbent in a two-to-one Democratic district in mm. Rockland County. Uh, I was the only Republican pickup in the state legislature. Uh, and, you know, it's the same reasons why we're going to win uh, this time around. One-party rule does not work. People cannot afford to live here, and they don't feel safe. 
And, you know, it's only gotten worse under under complete Democrat control uh, at every level of government. You know, I think, Mike Lawler, that is a general theme in this entire nationwide election where one party rule in Washington and, as you say, in Albany, too, but one party rule in Washington has proved to be a disaster. And I think one of the reasons the Republicans are going to take both houses is that the voters want to check. They want to stop. You know, they don't no want question. to go in the big government, socialist inflation, et cetera. I mean, I think it's a check and balance issue. And so you're going to see it here. That's why you're going to beat uh, this uh, chap, Sean M- Maloney. But I think that's a key theme. No, no question. And and it's it's on a number of issues. I mean, you look at our southern border, you have a porous border, uh, tens of thousands of migrants coming into the country illegally every day. And on top of that, drugs pouring in, uh, fentanyl coming into our communities, killing 300 Americans a day. People are really fed up with what's going on. They want balance. They want common sense in in every level of government. And they want people to be held accountable. Right now, you just have runaway spending, over $4 trillion in new spending. You have surging crime with one disastrous uh, pro-criminal, anti-police policy after the next. Uh, and there's no balance. There's no common sense. And that's what that I really do believe uh, when when all is said and done, regardless of whether you're a Republican, a Democrat or an independent voters across this country and here in New York are going to send a loud message that they're tired of it and they want change. They want balance uh, and they do not support one party rule. All right. Well, folks, that's Mike Lawler running for Congress up in Rockland County, Putnam County, the new 17th. Mike, I'm going to let you go for your rally with Lee Zeldin, who's a great friend, and he's going to win, too. Thanks very much for your time. Good Thanks luck on the campaign you, trail. You bet. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, I want to get back to the national economy. Former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Mike Falkenberg is going to join us and help out sorting through inflation, recession, and all the rest of it. Please stick around. We'll be right back. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we, we had a bunch of economic data this week. I know the election is hot and heavy. That's what everybody's talking about. Uh, and a mixed bag. I guess that's the way I would call it, a mixed bag. Uh, 2.5%, 2.6% increase in GDP. All of it was exports. It wasn't the domestic economy. And inflation numbers uh, still very difficult. So... We're going to Mike Falkender, who's a professor of finance at the University of Maryland, former assistant secretary of the Treasury, secretary for economics. Mike, thanks for giving us a little time here on Saturday. Sort through, just give me your quick impressions of all these numbers that came out this week, if you would. Sure. So as you mentioned, the, the GDP report came in pretty much as expected and it was driven by, as you said, the net exports number. So the domestic economy, domestic consumption slowed significantly. Private investment fell enormously, which is what we would expect. You know, housing just got crushed in the third quarter. Mm. And, the, the, you know, the exports number is going to be a one-time blip because I think you had two things going on. Number one is that a lot of the exports were petroleum products. I think that was the largest component of it. And I don't see that continuing, particularly as, you know, OPEC 
drills less. And as we stop taking out of the strategic petroleum reserve, I just don't think we're going to be exporting nearly the amount of, of petroleum products going forward that we did in the third quarter. But the other thing is that the imports number declined, and that was because part of China shut down again. And so with the reopening of Shanghai, you're going to see a catch up on some of those imports. And that's going to so that's going to reverse in the fourth quarter. So we've got some headwinds coming into the fourth quarter because, as you said, business investment is slowing significantly as a result of higher interest rate environment. Consumer spending is slowing again because of the higher interest rate environment. And we've got a drag that's going to be coming from uh, a reverse in the exports. Michael, I mean, basically, the first three quarters of the year, it's flatline, right? Yeah, flatline. And what the overall inflation rate would be what? I mean, I know the PCE deflator came out 6.2% year on year. Is that about right in your judgment? The CPI is higher. It's still 8% plus. So you got flatline economy, a lot of weakness. Housing's in a bad recession already. Business investment slipping, consumer slipping. Where is the inflation rate in your judgment? Yeah, I think that that's measured correctly. I'm, I agree with the Fed that the PCE is a better metric because it adjusts as consumers change what they're buying. Mm-hmm. You know, the big difference between CPI and PCE is the bundle mm-hmm. that you're pricing. And so as the economy changes, you want to update the bundle, and that's what PCE grabs. So six seems about right. Uh you know, I think that the shelter inflation is probably maybe a little bit too high because the shelter inflation that they're measuring is picking up the run-up in house prices. But if house prices are now starting to come down due to the high interest rate environment, that means that's going to relax some of the impact on shelter. But as you and I talked about on your TV show earlier this week, we have, we're going to continue to see fuel inflation. And as you pointed out on Tuesday, there are so many petroleum products that are central to our economy, and you mentioned one of them, which is fertilizer. Mm. I think people really underestimate how much the reduction in fertilizer is going to continue to have an impact on the global food chain, and that that's why food inflation has been high and will probably continue. I want to come back to that in a second, but just one other thing. Uh, I was reading in the journal, Wall Street Journal this morning, so we got this employment cost index, which is a proxy for wages, plus 5% year-on-year, which is not a good number. But um, inside that, Michael Falkender, service workers, they mentioned retail, um, hospitality, uh, leisure, up 7.7%. Now, that is a very big number, and um, that makes me think that services inflation is going to be a problem here going forward. That's right. I mean, we, the, the whole concern the Fed had, and I think the reason Powell tried to convince the market that that inflation was temporary was so that we would not get into a wage price spiral. Well, we have, right? That, that cat's out of the bag. Mm. And so employees are going to demand compensation, particularly given how tight the labor market is. At all ends of the labor market, right? This is this is not just high end, high income people demanding wage increases. This is the entire spectrum of the labor force desiring, it, you know, improvements in their wages to compensate for the inflation. But that's what kicks off the wage price spiral because, of course, the higher wages then got to be paid for by higher prices, which mm-hmm. then requires higher wages. And I think it's going to take quite a long time for the Fed to regain credibility and get 
wage earners and, and labor unions that are negotiating wage contracts to actually believe that we're going to get inflation back under control. Mm. That's what that's the problem when inflation gets out of control is that then long term contracts incorporate higher rates of wage increases and cost increases. And it then creates kind of this permanent momentum to have higher inflation. Mm. We're talking to Michael Falkender, former assistant secretary of the Treasury, now teaching uh, finance and economics at the University of Maryland. So I want to go back to the TV show. I said to you, Republicans are going to sweep, but they're going to have a big problem. The economy is going to be declining. Inflation is still going to be high. It's a stagflation scenario. And I said, Michael Falkender, if I if I appoint you king for a day, January 3rd, what would you do? And you answered what? I answered the first thing we got to do is unleash American energy and end the war on American fossil fuels. At the end of the day, American fossil fuels, petroleum products, low-cost energy permeates the entire economy more than any other sector because it goes into the creation of so many of our products and it's required for the transportation of so many of our products. It was a brilliant answer. I mean that. It was a brilliant answer, and I've carried it forward all week long. It's such an important – there's a lot of things we have to do on spending and taxing and so forth, but I think you nailed it. I really do. It was an absolutely brilliant answer. Yeah, and when I think back to the success that we had during the Trump administration, it really was a trifecta of economic policies. It was tax reform. It was deregulation, but it was also unleashing American energy. Yeah. And it's it's been so discouraging to see the Biden administration reverse course on all three of those things. And where I think a Republican Congress can be most effective from day one is on the energy piece, because there's absolutely no reason not to greenlight the Keystone Pipeline. Mm. There's absolutely no reason for for oil and gas leases to be at their lowest on levels on federal land that we have seen in generations. And I think that the I, I would love. I think the Republican Congress should dare the president to veto that. I think that the, here's the talk, Mike. Um, um, they're going to have a big permitting bill. Um, it'll be House and Senate. It may be the very first thing they do. So your advice is going to be taken. Uh, they're talking already about H.R. 1 and S. 1. Uh, it'll look something like Shelley Moore Capito's bill, but maybe even simpler and more direct. I guess it will simply codify permitting. I think that's what they're aiming for. It may include leasing, but basically it will open the door to, you know, all of it, fracking, production, pipelining, refining. I think I think that's where they're going to go. And I think that's correct because, as you say, and I, we went through this, um, I riffed on this several times of the week, Fossil fuels permeate so much of our everyday life. And on top of that, you know, natural gas is really a clean burning fuel and we make the cleanest oil in the world. So I think that I think they're going to do essentially they're going to follow your advice. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one thing people don't realize is we cut carbon emissions, I believe, more than every other developed nation because of fracking, Mm -hmm. because converting our fuel supply largely to cleaner natural gas. Mm -hmm. So it is not inconsistent with having environmental goals that we engage in fracking and move towards, you know, lower emission sources of fossil fuels while we 
bring on other types of energy. You know, you and I also in the Trump administration looked at renewing nuclear power. Mm-hmm. I think I think we need to, to I'd love to see part of H.R. one and S one encourage more nuclear power. What they've done in miniaturization uh, has been incredible. So there's a lot we can do in the energy sector and still be environmentally conscious. What I've never understood coming out of the Biden administration is why we would shut down domestic sources of fossil fuel production and then go ask the Venezuelans and the Saudis for oil. Right. I mean, there's just as if they're as if they are going to extract it in a more environmentally friendly way. <laughs> I, no, it's well, and look, a lot of people share that view. I mean, that's one of the sub themes in this. There's no reason why you can't have all of the above anyway. I mean, you're not against renewables. I'm not against renewables. You mentioned nuclear power. I'm not. I'm not against solar. I'm not against wind, but that's only five percent. The rest of it's nuclear, and then the rest, seventy-five percent or something, is fossil fuels. So you're waging war on our principal source of power, and it's not going. To, you can't eliminate it. You can't. Well, eliminate, that, it's so important. And back to permitting reform, If even if you want to go more to renewables, why have we made ourselves reliant upon critical minerals largely from China and cut off our ability to mine those here in the United States? So even if you have an aspiration to go more renewables, there are certain inputs into creating windmills, into creating lithium batteries and, and electric vehicles and all of those things that it's very difficult to mine here in the United States. So we absolutely... Mining reform, permitting reform is, as you said, it's going to facilitate in all of the above domestic strategy. And we can once again become energy independent and keep all the wealth that we're currently exporting overseas. We can keep it here in the United States. Last uh, minute, Michael Fogater. Um Recession risk, how would you rate it right now? I, I think we're looking extremely likely. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the table has been set, even if we get S1 and HR1. Mm. Uh, by the time all of that goes into play, I, I just we're going to be well into 2023. And I, I think that, as I said, with headwinds already in front of us um, and the Fed necessarily tightening because of the excessive fiscal and regulatory activities of the Biden administration, unfortunately, I think the table's been set for a recession at the beginning of 23. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, Michael Falkender, folks, University of Maryland, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, good friend. It's a very strong analysis, very tough stuff, but we've got to unleash fossil fuels. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we are going to do some stock market work. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay with us. Plenty more coming. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow. It's 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And by the way, if you somehow can't make it, just uh, text your favorite nine-year-old. You could text a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old. They all know how to DVR the show. It will teach you how to DVR the show. And here, 
You can live stream us everywhere on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, throughout the globe, and the solar system. So let us do some stock market work, okay? We have a very low-keyed group today. We have Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO, KKM Financial. Um, see if he defends Notre Dame football. I don't know whether he can or chooses to. Anyway, gentlemen, welcome back. Um, so the topic is not hard. We have a booming stock market. The last month, booming stock market. And there are a lot of things going on in the market, as there always are. Federal Reserve policies, profits, and all the rest of it. But I want to begin with my thesis, which is quite simply, the stock market sees the cavalry is coming, a Republican sweep in the House and Senate. That means that Joe Biden's socialism will no longer reign supreme in the land. We had Dan Clifton on earlier who talked about the Republican basket of stocks like energy stocks and defense stocks and immigration, illegal immigration, border-type stocks, law enforcement stocks. So the pieces seem to be falling in place, and I want to see what you guys think. How long does this rally go? Is it for real? Does it have legs? How important is the Washington story? I begin with you, Jeff Kilberg. Well, Larry, great to be here. As usual, I can't say the same about being with Jimmy Uriel, but we'll get to that later. But I do have... (laughs) optimism and what we've seen in the S&P 500 it's up 12% since the low of October 13th and yes I know there's a lot of political undercurrents but I go back to this earnings season I think a lot of people were raising their eyebrow about the earnings season I think we've seen better than expected I'm not going to talk about the tech wreck but let's talk about Caterpillar let's talk about Boeing let's talk about some of the positivity I think that is really encouraging that coupled with oversold conditions I think you are seeing volatility bring markets back higher with the S&P 500 at 3,900, I think you will see some certainty next week. Obviously, we're looking at the Fed meeting and the midterm elections. But nonetheless, I think the market, the risk to the market is being underinvested, not invested, as I think markets move higher as we are getting some certainty across the board. Jim Urio, your response? So, okay. See, I think you guys are, are missing a couple things. And I, I actually don't even disagree with you. And, Larry, for your your thesis, I hope you're right. I think you're right. I don't think it's it's right front and center. And you mentioned like energy stocks being a Republican stock. I'll actually argue the opposite. I bought energy stocks two years ago when the Democrats took office because I believed that their policies would completely force up the price of crude, and they did. And that's one of the reasons I'm keeping them, because either either party could be good for that sector. But we have to remember that the, the, two num- the numbers that came out over the last week, the GDP number, which looked good but was really bad, the PCE number, which was interesting in that spending was up, wages were not, uh, it, it kind of indicates that going forward, the consumer is going to be tapped. Personal savings rates are down. But the, the key part of this is, is that the odds for a Fed only 50 basis point hike at the meeting on, on Wednesday, which is probably not going to happen, has gone from about 3% a month ago to almost 18% today. So the market is saying that the Fed is beginning, and they, they trotted out Mary Daly last week, and she said something about that we have to start thinking about stepping down. So I still think the Fed is the most important thing. I thought technically 
that if we settled the market above 38.25, that the bear market was over. And you guys know I've been somewhat bullish for October in the fourth quarter the whole time. However, we have this big wild card that Jeff mentioned, which is the Fed on Wednesday. So I'm going to, to revamp that to say I want to see some follow-through this week. And then I honestly will believe the bear is over. I mean, because there's so many Stop reasons. Stop hedging, Ariel. Stop hedging and just come out with it. The consumer no, what do you mean? Strong, it's that's what we do. We hedge. Go. You go. <laughs> Well, no, I, I think you have to really look at, we saw GDP. I know it's a rear view mirror look, but at the end of the day, growth is still there. And I know it's contrasting when you see all the different head, headwinds of inflation, but the consumer, the households are still strong. I know you're being cheap this year on buying Halloween candy, probably pass on notebooks or spider rings, but people are still spending money. I think that's positive, Larry. <laughs> Don't ask me. Ask Yuria. Oh, good. No, cause here, because people are still spending money. But th- this is the weird thing. They're spending money that they don't have. I think there's this weird psychological thing that's happened okay. over the last two and a half years that people deny themselves experiences for so long, and they're willing. There's this kind of YOLO live for today thing that's fueling spending. So I still will, st- will say that the most important thing is the Fed appears to be getting a little less aggressive. But again, Powell's Powell's pounded us over the head before he did it at Jackson Hole, and he's coming out and speaking on Wednesday. So, again, you, you call it hedging, but I'm not going to be placing any big oh, that's a great point. on any that's a great point. until I hear him talk. Look, you can. Well, and that's why, all the, that's why all the blue chip tangible names continue to outperform. Look at year to date. You know, you've seen the exit, the mass exodus out of growth and the value. And I think these valued industrial names continue to work. Yeah, Larry, you could take a break while you have us on. You don't need to wrangle no, the cat. I'm, I'm going out to have an illegal <laughs> cigarette. But industrials led industrials were the best performer this week, six point seven percent. Utilities six point five, financials six point two, um energy down two point eight. By the way, the energy Republican play is in is in people who do fracking. It's all the supports oh, yeah, yeah. and infrastructure okay. services, which the Democrats have basically shut yeah. down. But I want to ask you guys, um both of you, uh the tech story. So this market is rallying without the famous tech names, without Microsoft, without Amazon, uh, without Facebook, et cetera. What do you make of that? Either one of you. I want to hear from yeah, both. You go first because I don't have a good answer. Well, well, I would just jump in and say, Larry, I think we have to remember the tech darlings, which were nearly 25% of the S&P 500. Think about that. Five stocks of the S&P 500 were the majority of the investors for 2018, 2019, pre-COVID. So you saw such a run-up. I think it was overdone. Now you're seeing a complete repricing or a revaluation. And I think it's fascinating to see, look at Facebook, got kicked out of the top 20 stocks, went from a trillion dollars down to about $280 million market cap. And I think that's remarkable, but it's also a long time coming. So we look at biotech, we look at financials, some of the names that were under love. Look at Bank of America up 20%, J.P. Morgan up 22% for the month of October. So I think we're coming back to reality. I think this is actually really healthy to see this tech valuation. And is there value now in some of these growth stocks? I think there is. Microsoft, you know great leadership. Apple, great leadership. On me now. I worry about Facebook. Come on in, Jimmy. Yeah, come on in. What just dawned on me now is that we group those names together, but does Facebook really belong in the same grouping with Amazon and Google? I, I don't think it does. I think that a lot of those those names were just attracting dollars 
because they were attracting dollars. And all of a sudden, there's the reval, and, and from the rubble, you see what's interesting and good. And I'm not saying, you know, I already have probably too much Amazon and Google that have accumulated over the years and never wanted to take capital gains tax on. So I don't know that I'm coming in and buying it, but uh, I, I think that if you've been waiting for your pullback, well, here you go. But they all reported uh, lower than expected revenues and sales. I mean, they are different companies. And people and Microsoft is completely different, but they all had one thing in common. It seemed like they're all reporting lower sales and revenues. Yeah, that's no. There's no question about it. I'm just talking about from a business model. Where do you see things fitting in in the next ten years? And I certainly, in my mind, see Amazon fitting in a lot more cleanly and clearly than I do for Facebook. So Jeff Kilberg, I just just to I just want to. So your point sure. is to stay with the rally, stay with it. Be invested. It is a stay with the rally. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about volatility. And I think a lot of people think about volatility taking markets down. But as you know, Larry, because you've been around uh, longer than Jimmy and I have, volatility also takes markets up. And when you see people underinvested, when you people see concerned about housing and all the different re- reevaluations, you can see the market go back above 4,100 with some tangible certainty politically as well as investment-wise going into 2023. So, yeah, I think you stick – with the investment, I think you'd be considerate of your sector exposure like you just illuminated. And you have to own names that really are blue chip, that are tangible. Owning some of these high-flying tech COVID stocks, you know, that, that was just disastrous on a, a variety of levels. Jim Urio, what's the commodity read right now? So I, to me, you know, now they seem to stabilize after the pullback. To me, they're all everything. The metals, in particular, are just seem to be waiting for um, for rates to stabilize. I think there's some really interesting opportunity. I just gave a speech at the New Orleans Investment Conference two weeks ago about copper, about how copper has been pounded down by rates going higher, the dollar going higher, and these intermittent lockdowns in China. With all at the same time that we're talking about decarbonizing our future and carbon, I mean, uh, copper having to fit in so, so much with that. So I think there's some really interesting plays and I think uh, copper is going to be the play for the next five years. If it settles above 380 at any time in the next few weeks, I'm uh, going to begin to go along that. But I think the, the most, the commodity complex, I'm taking out energy here is just waiting for rates to stabilize or a belief that the fed is either neutral or beginning to look at what, when they're going to uh, ease rates, which is coming at the end of next year. I don't understand though. Uh, the semi-euphoria that the Fed is going to back off. Like, I don't buy it. And I don't think the numbers that came out this week support that point of view. I mean, look, the Fed's uh, top-line measure, the PCE, personal consumption expenditures deflator, is 6.2% above year ago. I mean, that's a bad number. And the core rate is actually rising above 5%. And I want to add to that, the Cleveland Fed now casting on inflation, they do a pretty interesting job, is looking at a very bad CPI number um, for October that will come out next month. They're looking at 0.8% rise in the CPI, and I think 05 on a core basis. So I think you guys are getting over your skis on this Fed pullback, I don't see it, fellas. But the, but could the Fed be possibly understanding? And I hate to ever accuse them of understanding any of the internals of the numbers. But the real estate market, which back in the great great financial crisis, the real estate market turned, and the lag of it showing up in CPI was about a year and a half later, where we actually because because it is such a strong lag. Is the Fed smart enough? And is the market saying the Fed smart enough to know that the, the real estate has been dealt an absolute knockout? 
up low with rates going for mortgage rates going from three percent to over seven percent. But it hasn't fallen to the canvas yet. It's just stumbling around the ring because it takes some time to do that. So when the market well, is disagrees with you, Larry, and agree, and I'm just I'm just saying that the Fed funds curve is saying now the Fed is changing. Now that's why I'm in Jeff's camp. With I'm a little more bullish than I was. But and this kills me to say, Larry, Wednesday, I, we agree, have to see Powell. I agree with Uriel. I agree with Uriel because that's the one-two punch I think the Fed is looking at but not talking about. The one-two punch of rates, obviously, historically moving higher and really seeing housing. Housing is in a free fall. You saw uh, loan applications last week, week over week, go down 42%. You're seeing the cost of a house nearly double to buy that new house. So that is one thing they're really being mindful of. And I think that really slams the brakes. And if you look at from Nashville to New York to California to Chicago, look across the country, people are not buying homes. And if they want to move, they can't because they have a 3% mortgage. And why would they move to a 7% mortgage? So that cooling and housing is going to be a, a wonderful way for the Fed to watch inflation not come to a standstill by any means. We All still right. have stubborn inflation. I got but it's going to for anyone break. listening here, break. both Jeff and break. I are saying that break. Things are worse than we think, break. and that's why we're bullish. Break, 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 break. Jim Urio, T- director of TJM Institutional Services, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with stocks. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Don't really get a word in edgewise, but it's not necessary when you have Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial, two of my favorites. You know, fellas, I was just looking at my stock and bond market sheets. Um, the three-month Treasury bill closed at four oh five, and the ten-year note at four oh one. I think that's the first time I've seen that inversion. The old New York Fed model of the economy said it's the T bill and the ten years, not twos to tens. It's the bill to tens. And when that inverts, that is a recession forecaster. And we had Michael Falkender on, a very good economist. He was the assistant secretary of the Treasury during the Trump years, and uh, he teaches school at Maryland. I mean, you know, uh, Jim Uriel, Falkenberg said the table is set for recession. And I think these inversions suggest that that's the case. Now, even with the cavalry coming, the Republicans are going to inherit a stagflation. And I just want to spend a few moments on that. How does one pilot through the stock market? It is not a good economic environment. No. And this is interesting because I think there's absolutely no question that there's going to be a recession. If I was going to make one wager for the next two quarters is that a recession is going to show up at some point in time in those. But I think from an investing standpoint, that doesn't necessarily mean, again, I'm going to go back to an old theme and it's probably going to irritate you, but it doesn't mean that the stock market does poorly because the Fed tends to come to the rescue. Remember that this whole this whole exercise in idiocy that the Fed pumps things up when they shouldn't have and then takes away the punch bowl when they you know, too much so is going to cause a recession they've t- they've talked about they call it about you know, creating slack in the job market what that means for them is you lose your job you know they they don't understand i think how to, to put it in different words how ugly it sounds but i think there's no question that a recession is coming i think that it's going to be mild because it's not the last two big recessions we've seen we saw were, you know when the, the great financial crisis and 
on the tech stock bubble was based on leverage and buildup of market positions that were just enormous and needed a long time to be unwound. I don't see that as much right now. Mm-hmm. I see excess in everything that needs to be unwound, but not in specific assets like real estate. So I think it, there is going to be a recession, but I don't think it necessarily has to be bad for the stock market. Well, Jeff, the thing about recessions, apart from the recession discussion, is what happens to profits. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. People forget that. I mean, earnings seasons come and go, and they're very important. Um, The Fed is going to raise rates more, and if you're in a recession, uh, profits are going to decline. Now, that worries me. I mean, look, I want a good stock market because I'm making a political case for the stock market. But, you know, you have to be honest and objective and empirical about these things. If you guys think there's a recession, then maybe the earnings profits story is overrated. Its strength is overrated, and Wall Street is overlooking that. Well, arguably, I took too many hits to the head, Larry, when I was playing for Coach Holtz, but I am not in the camp that a recession is is imminent. I actually think we have some optimism, and I believe to profits, to your point, you have to be selective. You have to be a stock picker again. You didn't have to be a stock picker for about a decade when the Fed initially intervened back in the Great Recession. But look at Exxon as a great example. They just reported the highest profits in their 152-year history last last week on Friday. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about certain sectors of the marketplace, I get excited, you know, when you talk about owning some of the banks for the first time in a while, sticking with some of these themes of energy, which has been a winning theme for the last two years. But also, I think you have to look at a name like an Intel. There is value in growth. Intel has been sliced in half. If you look at a three-year chart, it's trading about 60 bucks. Now it's under $30 after having a monstrous day to close the week. But I think you have to understand these, some of these names where you can not hide necessarily, but that's where you can participate. But the broad swath investing, you're very vulnerable. You're very susceptible. And I think you have to rethink your exposure. But I do take some optimism and some hope, I guess I will say, as once we see this financial certainly out of the midterm election, historically for the last 85 years, which, you know, Jimmy has seen all those 85 years, what we have seen is that the market does move higher. It's typically a double return in the S&P 500. So that's where I think is a lonely view, but I'm more optimistic and I'm actually emboldened because there's so much pessimism out there. Well, Jim Urio, the market traditionally loves divided government. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's what you're going to get. Yeah, because when I love divided government, because when nothing gets done, that's when our government is most effective. When they actually try to help us, I'm doing the quotation marks, that's when they mess things up. But Larry, for you and I have known each other and talked to each other for almost 17 years, I believe. And one thing that we disagree on fundamentally is you say that profits are the mother's milk of stocks. And uh-huh. I love that. And I wish it were true. And I say that the Fed and free money are the, are the uh, mother's milk of stocks. And that, and what I, both of us can be right just to certain degrees, in my opinion. And I just think mine is more right. By the way. Um, oh, my goodness. That's great. Sorry, what? What do you want from me? I know. That's why we love you. Um, I just want to weigh in and say I don't like divided government. I like three conservative capitalist branches of government. Okay? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite government, which, by the way, we had during the Trump years. We never really had that during the Reagan years. We, we always had divided government, although Reagan was able to bring the Democrats with him, so we almost had three houses. But so you guys are both – got to close this down. It's been lovely. But if I hear it right, you're saying to our listeners, stay in the stock market right now. Okay, real quick, Jeff. That's right. Ahead. All right. 
Can, no, I think that's right. You, you have to hurt all the political component and yep. look at where the stock market is valued. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying be leery of Jerome on Wednesday, too. Oh, my God. But, yes. Jay Powell. You know what? That's a very wise thing. Be leery of Jay Powell. <laughs> Holy cow. What a thought. Anyway, gentlemen, you're both fabulous. Jeff Kilberg and Jim Burio. Folks, stick around. We got some money in politics coming up with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. We're going to do some money politics, as we always do. We have our first A-team, Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his book, Gubzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy. And our freedom. So welcome to both of you. And I want to talk about a couple of slightly offbeat things. But the first thing I want to talk about is, is Bono. Bono, famous musician, songwriter, singer, global following. And I'm going to read the tweet. Let's see. This is actually a tweet about Bono. I saw it in the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, if I get this right. Anyway, quote, I thought if we just redistributed resources, then we could solve every problem. I now know that's not true. The off-ramp out of extreme poverty is uh, commerce. It's entrepreneurial capitalism. And Bono is a great uh, philanthropist, but I think he's learned that uh, free market capitalism is better than picking various areas or spending your own money. I mean, Steve Moore, this guy's a global figure, and he comes out for free market capitalism. And I don't know what that means, but what do you think that means? There's got to be a good thing someplace in this. No, it's a great thing. And, you know, I'm a big admirer of of Bono. He's done an amazing uh, charitable work over the last 20 years with the hundreds of millions of dollars that he's made as one of the top musicians in the world um but you can only get so far with charity you know and what's the old saying i, I don't know if this is from the bible or what but you know if you uh, give a man a fish he, he eats for a day if you teach a man to fish he eats for a lifetime mm. and you know that's what free market capitalism is it's teaching people to fish and te- you know start businesses and employ people so um yeah no it's beautiful and it, as i said on your tv show the other day this is the the uh, Kudlow Creed, you know, the best path to prosperity is free market capitalism. And who would have thought Bono would, would get that? By the way, he's been, of course, criticized by the left for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, Liz, but that's a tough one. You can't really attack Bono, can you? I mean, no. it's really like attacking City Hall. So the left <laughs> is going to have a problem with this. Well, I think it's like attacking Gandhi or something, right? I mean, to the left, he's constantly out there espousing all the causes that they like. Now, if he could just put this to music, Larry, then we really have something, right? Yes. What we need is a, a trending, uh, you know, CD with his name on it that has this this uh, mantra. But look, 
it's it's Margaret Thatcher. Eventually, you run out of other people's money. Somewhere, you have to create money to be distributed to people who don't have enough, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that corporations are evil because they make profits, which is kind of what you're hearing about oil companies right now, and all the rest that, uh, that the left kind of hates about free market capitalism, they don't kind of have an answer for where is the money going to come from for the truly needy and unfortunate amongst us if if indeed those profits don't exist. There is no answer. So, you know, good for him for actually saying this because to Steve's point, uh, he'll be crucified for it and already has been. I think, though, you know, every time Biden goes out there, I love Biden's closing arguments in the election it's mega, 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 trickle down. What does down. it even mean, honestly? <laughs> mega, it's mega. So, so I, you know, what, what Kevin McCarthy used to say is Bono. <laughs> it's just Bono. Yeah. What are you yeah. going to do with Bono? Bono's supposed to be some lefty, Democratic-leaning, <laughs> Green New Deal figure, and he's talking about free market capitalism. I mean, the, the culture of that is almost mind-boggling. That's why I love this so much. And by the way, Steve Moore, you're exactly right. Teach them to fish. That's a yeah. key thing. I don't know whether I, Old Testament. It sounds kind of Old Testament. I have to ask <laughs> right. my wife, Judy, knows about the Bible. I don't know anything about the Bible. Now, the other character that I want to talk about, uh, perhaps more to the point, is Elon Musk, mm. who took over Twitter and fired everybody. In fact, there's a great picture of him walking in the headquarters with a kitchen sink. He's a very clever guy, this Elon Musk. Now, this is a big deal. This is a free speech big deal, Steve Moore and Liz Speak. I mean, I think this is very profound. I think it's going to affect all of social media, and it's going to affect, I think, all media. It's going to affect CNN. It's going to affect MSNBC. It's going to affect all the news networks. This guy is pushing free speech. He's going to completely change Twitter. And I want to get your thoughts on this because I see this as a very profound development. Go ahead, Steve. You first. Um, look, I, I'm I'm really happy with this outcome. I use Twitter. I think you use uh, Twitter, and and used to. I know you do. We used tweet. to. And, and so, uh, look, I'm against the government intervening these, and that maybe puts me at odds with some conservatives who say, you know, let's regulate Google, let's regulate Facebook. No, you know, let the market work. And I think this is. This is a private entrepreneur who is highly successful. Said, "Hey, I can run this company better." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just about free speech. He thinks he can make more money at it doing it this way and attracting a much wider audience. When you have, you know, how do you kick off of your platform the the biggest <laughs> the guy who generates the most business for you? And that's what they did when they kicked off, you know, Donald Trump. So I applaud this. I think Elon Musk is exactly right. And by the way, you're you're so right too. He's an incredible master. Uh, marketer um, in the way he's carried this off. But he's also a brilliant person. Mm. He is a brilliant person. People kind of dismiss him as a kook. Well, you don't create SpaceX, which is doing more for our space program than the government is at this point if you're a kook. You don't create the boring company, which is one of the more innovative uh, real hands-on yes. solutions-driven company I've ever seen. This guy and and Tesla. I mean, come on, he made electric vehicles actually a real thing. So I think he's an enormously talented, and he is kooky. There's no question about it. He has a little uh, sometimes puerile <laughs> sense of humor. Okay, that's fine. I don't care. 
Uh, I'm very excited about this, but Larry, the, the really astonishing thing to me, and I cannot get over it, is the reaction of people on the left who you would think really feel that this is the beginning of the end of civilization. People <laughs> like Robert Wright, who used to have on your program all the time, if yes. I'm not mistaken, yes. who came out in this horrified, oh. oh my gosh, a billionaire taking over a social media platform. Who does he think runs Google and Facebook? Right. I mean, <laughs> come on. This is ridiculous. It, it, the left is so over-the-top incensed about it. It really tells you everything you need to know about what they're values are and what they really think is freedom it constitutes freedom and a free society if elon musk succeeds in making twitter a free speech platform and and if it infiltrates i mean look facebook for example is losing its shirt their stock is crashing and so yeah. forth and all these places google i mean it is the end of leftist civilization they're right the lefties are right this is a a, a, a sword stuck in their heart, in their guts. Elon, it's just like Bono. These are guys, they're offbeat guys. They're not buttoned down guys. They're not corporate guys. They're not Republicans, etc. They're doing things and they're saying to the left, you are wrong. You are completely wrong. And I think this is a profound, you know, it's political, but it's almost a cultural issue. That's how deep this is going to run. Well, I, yeah. if I could just say one thing, I think that we, people tend to forget right now, because Trump's not in office, the whole cancel culture that really became really horrifying. I mean, if you, and also, uh, there were two things that got you banned from social media. One was saying anything good about Donald Trump, certainly. But the other thing, which I think was is inexcusable, was not being able to discuss, even if you were a doctor or a scientist, uh, different therapies, uh, different approaches to COVID. Mm. That was a brand new virus. No one knew what to do about it. The idea that Twitter and Facebook and Google would throw you off their platforms if you challenged any of the COVID orthodoxy, those people yeah. should be put in jail because I am quite sure they killed people. Mm. I mean, and I really, I'm not an extreme person, but when you batten down and dismiss alternative uh, ideas about remedies and so forth for a brand new disease. What kind of arrogance and stupidity is that? I, I, I that I can never get over. And Steve, yeah, it's, all, it's also stupidity as a business model too. I mean, yeah. look, I, I, look, I do believe like Google built that they should be able to do what they want. I don't buy this idea that Google is some kind of pu public utility. I hate that idea, mm. but. You know, I think the market is correcting all of this because I think what Elon Musk realized is like, wait a minute, you at Twitter have, have basically um, uh, attacked uh, your, half of your audience mm. you know, by going after any yeah. issue or any idea on the right. And so I think that this is going to allow the market to work. And I think you're going to see Twitter, you know, flourish under uh Elon Musk, and, don't, and I hope these other I hope these other platforms realize that this this idea that you're going to attack any uh, anyone who's got a conservative Republican viewpoint is bad business. It's not just a, a freedom of speech issue. It's just it's stupid to insult half of your customers. Yeah, it is bad business. Don't forget, politically, we have pretty good evidence that the Biden administration worked hard on these social media companies. Yeah. Uh, to do, for, for example, what Liz said, to keep out alternative yeah. COVID theories yeah. and remedies. 
but also to keep out alternative anything. Mm-hmm. And so here's Twitter, a new Twitter, which is, I presume, will be restructured, totally free speech. You want to put some whacked out thing on the left? Fine. You want to put some whacked out thing on the right? Fine. But you can't <laughs> stop it. You can't even, st- you, you know, you can't, you, you can't have misinformation czars. It is what it is. It's a free country with free speech. This undermines this, you know, Washington influencing that they've tried so hard to do. I mean, I think this is very important. Well, there is, I mean, Musk has talked about having a panel to review content. I'm sure you saw that. Mm. And I think some on the right are pretty alarmed that this could kind of lead to uh, some suppression of conspiracy theories or, or theories that other people don't agree with or whatever. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see who he puts on that panel uh, and how much judgment they really exert a control uh, on the on the platform. You know, wait and see. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't no, know. I, but, I've got to say that this misinformation idea the left keeps pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. The New York Times, half of everything they print is misinformation. Yeah. Right. I mean, so everything I Biden what... says is misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, they should put Bono on the panel. And they should. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about H.R. 1 and S. 1 permitting as the Republicans' first priority when they take over the Congress January 3rd. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Unleash Prosperity, and the book of Zilla. We're talking money and politics. Now, kids, um, there's a lot of talk that um, Republicans are going to sweep, and the first thing they're going to go for, I mean, they have a lot of work to do, obviously, but probably, increasingly, there's talk about what's being called H.R. 1 and S. 1, which would be a bill that would unleash unleash the production of uh, fossil fuels, uh, which permeate every part of life, which would deal with inflation and recession. It would reduce inflation. It it wouldn't remedy recession, but it would sure help promote some growth. And they're going to do it through some kind of permitting bill, uh, which would be law would overtake the regulations of the Biden administration. It may be shelling more capital, but there's a lot of different mixes in there. But the point is, that's where they want to go first. And I want you guys to weigh in on this, Steve Moore. Uh, I happen to like this a lot. They have met much to do, but I think this would be a very good first start. And I want to add just on this point, unleashing fossil fuel production, you know, it affects Every aspect of everyday life. This is what the greenies forget about, John Kerry and all the rest of them, Joe Biden. Everything is affected by fossil fuels, uh, you know, food, for example, and fertilizer and in operating rooms and in golf balls and tennis rackets. I mean, there's almost no end to it. There's not enough of it. Everybody knows that. So what do you think about H.R. 1 and S. 1, some kind of permitting bill? I love it. And, you know, the polling, by the way, shows if you like rank the top you know, 20 issues, it's like the economy, it's the border, it's inflation, it's crime. And then you go, wait, 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 wait on the list. And there's climate change. Wait, wait, wait down there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, this is, you know, very, very, very rich um, white liberals who care about climate change uh, more than all these issues that we call the kind of kitchen table issues that are affecting uh, most Americans every day. So 
Yes, I agree with everything you said. Look, we have, I'll repeat these numbers. We have 500. Don't, don't forget coal, Larry. Don't right. forget coal. We have 500 years worth of coal. We have the cleanest coal in the world. Uh, China's building 40 massive coal plants. Uh, we have cleaner coal than they do, so let's produce our own coal, obviously natural gas, obviously oil. I, I, I want to include nuclear power plants in that equation. And this is not just – just to add something, two things to what you said. Number one, it is also a jobs issue, mm-hmm. and that's why Fetterman is just getting hammered, mm-hmm. hammered in Pennsylvania for being against shale. We shouldn't reuse the word fracking, by the way. It's shale, oil, and gas. That's mm-hmm. what it is. I mean, it's shale, oil, and gas, and we have 500 years' worth of coal – 350 years worth of natural gas and 250 years worth of oil with existing technology. But one other quick thing, it is also an incredibly important national security issue as well. Uh, Yeah, I was just going to raise that. I I think (laughs) what what has really emerged during this last year, and I think Americans are finally – waking up to the idea that this is indeed a national security issue. And if you don't believe it, look at what's happening with Germany and other EU countries who are caught not only short, not only dealing with enormous spikes in energy costs and so forth, but their very existence, their very NATO alliance, everything else is on the line. Why? Because they allowed themselves to be dependent on the wrong people for energy. And for us to be even, uh, you know, even slightly uh, squashing our own energy potential is so absurd. I, I think actually, I really think this is sort of the pivotal issue in this mm-hmm. election because what is driving inflation more than energy costs? As you say, Larry, it, energy and plastics and fertilizers, yeah. all those things related affect everything we eat, we sleep on, uh, everything we drive, and so forth. It really impacts people's lives. So clothing. if inflation is the number one issue, really it's energy is the number one issue. I mean, you've got clothing, coffee makers, cold cream, combs, computer keyboard. I'm just looking at a list. There's like 150 things. By the way, we have 500 years of coal or whatever you said. Here's one for you. We have two weeks of diesel fuel. <laughs> I saw that. All right. By the way, two my, weeks. Car, my car takes diesel. My wife is like, you better go get a fill-up today. Cause we're I, I'm telling you, two <laughs> weeks. You have this potential shutdown. That yeah, was that do. thing Newt sent around. But but yeah. John Katsimatidis has been talking about this for a while. There's no diesel fuel. Yeah. And by the way, people have to know that all, almost all of the trucks on the road right. use diesel. Right. So what does that tell you about supply chains? And inflation. I mean, really, these dopes in Washington do not understand this. <laughs> it tells me that we have people in charge who are incompetent. And I think that's, thankfully, I think the country is increasingly aware of that. Um, you know, in, even in blue cities and states, the hope is, frankly, a lot of people just don't show up in the midterms because they're just over kind of the people in charge. It's not like they love Republicans, but they are really not happy with the status quo, and they're sure not going to vote vote for them again. Boy, fingers crossed that that really produces the kind of surge election. By the way, you guys and Steve, you have been so right about how this election uh, momentum can be generated just weeks from voting day. It's amazing to me to see how quickly things can kind of turn around. By the way, Kamala Harris standing in front of a diesel-powered school bus <laughs> blaming lower test scores on diesel fuel. Uh. All right? Is that the stupidest, even for her, is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? They, these kids 
have been riding in diesel buses for decades, and they had higher <laughs> test scores. They're, and she's blaming global warming? Really? I must say, the more you see of Kamala Harris, the more secure yeah. Joe Biden looks in his office. I, I mean, really honestly, true. she's she's extraordinary. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, know how else to I, put I, it. I think, I think I, I agree with that, list, but I think that they actually that was the intention of the Biden White House. Hey, let's send Kamala yeah. out there, stand in front of these buses and say, hey, we're going to we're going to, you know, uh, paint all our school buses green now. Uh, but it it is absurd, especially coming, by the way, two days after we get these frighteningly abysmal test scores. And right. by the way, this is this, you want to talk about a national security issue. The uh, the decline uh, and collapse of our schools is maybe the number one, you know, we're not producing kids. They've lost a full year of, um, of schooling. And you look at these, these uh, eighth graders, they can barely read, Larry. I mean, it is, yeah. it is such a tragedy. Wake up, America. The teachers' unions are the biggest villain in America. No, I really no way. It's climate change. Well, <laughs> it's climate change. That's Steve, what's wrecked these point, poor kids. Yeah. In New York, they're mobilizing. How are they mobilizing last minute in an absolute panic to make sure that Hochul wins? They're getting the teachers' unions out. And that is what is so offensive about this union that we all pay for, but they are in the pocket of the Democrats, which is why Democrats will never go after this election issue, I mean, the education issue. And by the way, when you look to 2024, let us put Trump on the sidelines. Hopefully he will be on the sidelines in 2024. I think candidates who can really speak to the American public about education, because that is not, you know, it's not a social issue. It's, a, it's an everybody issue. Someone like Glenn Youngkin, I think, is going to do very well pushing education as perhaps one of the top one or two issues. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, Liz. Trump may emerge as a really leading figure again. He may. If his, I don't disagree. If, can you, I'm, can you I'm wait just, until after the election? <laughs> no, I can. But yeah. I'm saying if these Senate candidates that he backed come home, I, yeah. I'm not making forecasts and I'm not predicting yeah, right. and I'm not pushing. I'm just saying empirically he's, you know, backing five, six, seven Senate candidates. And if a bunch of them win, you know, it's going to play well, into his hands. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so, true. You know, I know we're running out of time, but I got to make one last point on this that, you know, it, the Wall Street Journal had a great piece on this. That the Democrats really, when you think about it, they don't have any message right now. So, first it was abortion, and yeah, that works with some women for sure, but it hasn't elevated to the top. And then, obviously, climate change is an issue they care about. And they desperately want to talk about Donald Trump. Mm. You know, that's I know. That's so, a lot about. But this, is a, this election is never not about, Trump. about Donald Trump. It's, and so that's frustrated them to no end. And by the way, I want to say this. I appreciate that Donald Trump has kind of laid a low profile. Let the election play out, and then we can talk about the presidential the problem election. With America, the problem with America's yeah. diesel-fueled school buses. <laughs> Liz Peek and Steve Moore, thank you, kids. You're both fabulous. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We will see you next weekend. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show.